I kind of wake up every day to sort of think that maybe my research is going to help someone's life. And I think oh. this is kind of like, oh, wow, what a great person you are. But like, I really, I mean, I think I, I'm going to tell you a, like a small story. Uh, maybe this is, please, you can cut it out if it's not relevant. Let's go to 5000 BC. Trying to explain, like, I'm trying time traveling back then, trying to explain the motion adaptation model hmm. to them. They'll be like, go away. Like, you know, what are you talking about? This is not, I don't understand anything. So I'll, these models are not real models of the brain. Like, I don't know. How is the network failing? How do we know it is failing? And like, what could be the additions that you can make to the models that it may, improves it? I think to actually have a good quantitative, tangible grasp on those questions, I think you need a platform like BrainScore to actually be there. This is the model that tells you that what is going to be the predicted neural response for any given image. I think that's what, where we are in, in, in the sense that, like, that we, we think of this as a stronger test of the model because there are many models then that can come up with different images, then you can test those as well. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, good people. I'm Paul, a tempter of good uh, personhood, master of none. Today, I bring you Kohitij Kar, who also goes by Ko, master of core visual object recognition. So Ko has been a postdoc for the past few years in Jim DiCarlo's lab. And if you remember, I had Jim DiCarlo on back on episode 75, talking about the approach that his lab takes to figure out our ventral visual processing stream and how we recognize objects. And much of the work that Jim and I actually talked about was done uh, in part by Ko. Now Ko is an assistant professor at York University, where he'll be starting his lab uh, this summer. His lab is called the Visual Intelligence and Technological Advances Lab. And he's part of a group of people who were hired into a fancy new visual neurophysiology center uh, at York that is going to be led by none other than my previous postdoc advisor, Jeff Shaw. So Ko and I kind of continue the conversation about using convolutional neural networks to study the ventral visual processing stream. And on this episode, we talk uh, about that background a little bit and also Ko's ideas for where it's going. So as you may know, what started out uh, as a feedforward convolutional neural network has since been uh, extended and expanded, and Ko continues to extend and expand both the models to account for uh, object recognition and experimental work that will be used in conjunction with the models to help us understand visual object recognition. And that includes adding other brain areas and therefore models to more wholly encompass an explanation of our visual intelligence. So I get Ko's thoughts on what's happening, what will happen, and how to think about visual intelligence and a lot more topics. I link to his lab, and he is hiring, as he says at the end, so if you're interested in this kind of research, you should check it out. I link to it in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 122. Thank you, as always, to my Patreon supporters. Uh, if you decide you want to support the podcast for just uh, a few bucks a month, you can check that out on the website at braininspired.co as well. All right, enjoy Kohitich. Car. Ko, uh, are you an electrical engineer? Are you a neuroscientist? What the heck are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm an electronics engineer, according to my undergraduate um, education and training. 
Uh, and then sort of I moved slowly, like, gradually into like biomedical engineering, one step towards neuroscience maybe, mm-hmm. and then finally did a PhD in neuroscience. What was it that got you interested in uh, neuroscience? I think like all of, a lot of us, I think th- those were discussions about consciousness and things like that, <laughs> that I kind of cringe upon a little bit now. But <laughs> but those were, the, those were the introduction to neuroscience. And I think I particularly got influenced by a lot of these very nice storytellers. Like, uh, so I was doing my master's at New Jersey Institute of Technology, but I was sort of um, cross-registering for courses at Rutgers, where Yuri Bujaki was, was a professor back then. Mm. And just like listening to him and the way he talks about the brain, I think those kind of, those were sort of the initial hooks to like, oh, I really want to be in this field and be with these people and like talk about the brain with them. Things like that, like sort of at a very artificial, sort of superficial level, uh, mostly. And I, I remember going to one talk uh, from V.S. Ramachandran at, at Princeton, uh-huh. And it was like, those kind of things was like, wow, like, this is such a, you know, uh, interesting system, and I want to work on it. And, and I think that were the initial things that kind of like drew me towards studying the brain. The storytellers. <laughs> the, the storytellers, pretty much. And I think now I'm kind of like, thinking there could be something beyond storytelling. And like, uh, but, but I mean, the storytellers are perfectly fine scientists, and they also do a lot of stuff that I kind of do now. So like, there's nothing against storytelling. But <laughs> I think that component that I sometimes kind of feel like, oh, what is the use of that? I think it's really useful because like to tell a story about your science in a way that sort of attracts young minds, I think is very useful. But now, so so consciousness and storytelling uh, drew you in, but now you've <laughs> discarded both of them as uh, frivolous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've discarded them as frivolous. I, I, I just have... I, I think my time is spent better doing other things mm-hmm. than that. And I think I don't think those are uh, like bad problems to work on or, or like u- useless things. I think they're actually very useful. But I kind of realized that that's not my sort of you know forte. Like that's not my uh, expertise. Is not doing that. What percentage yeah. of people do you think who uh, <laughs> you know are are drawn in are drawn in because of like the big questions like that, and then um, you know. I said discard or, uh, you know, whatever I said, but then go on to realize, you know, that start asking very specific questions and, and kind of leave those larger things by the wayside. It, it's a really high percentage, isn't it? I think so. I think it's, it's like a very high percentage. Yeah. But, but I think also it probably is useful to kind of keep reminding ourselves what the big questions are and like, uh, so I think that's simultaneously very important. And yeah. it's just that the, f- sorry. Um, no, no, that's fine. I was, I was just going to say that I, I think part of the reason, and I, I don't really know the whole reason, but I think part of the reason is that um, those big questions get you in and then you realize uh, that there are a lot of big questions that are super interesting that aren't those questions. I don't know. Does that seem on point? I think that's right. And I think that's kind of like very similar to how I feel right now. And I think, I mean, I know that it's sort of like said multiple times that it's all about like asking the right questions and mm-hmm. like the questions are very important. But, but what, at least from my perspective, I think I realized that like the answers and what do I consider as satisfactory answers to those questions often determine like how you approach your science and things like that. So to me, like it's just not about the questions also like what kind of answers am I satisfied with and why am I seeking that <laughs> answer? I think those are the real drivers of what I actually do in the lab. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, I would like to like, you know, simulate, I don't know, uh, consciousness in an artificial <laughs> system. But I think that that is going to be a very difficult um, kind of objective to, 
you know, go for it in a lab and get funding for it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that some people are trying to do that who are more privileged than probably I am. But Congratulations on the new job. I guess it's not so new now, but where are you, where are you sitting right now? You're not at York yet, are you? No, no, I'm I'm still at, at in Cambridge, Massachusetts at MIT, yeah. McGovern Institute. When when are you research. so when are you headed to York? Yeah, I'm starting in July 2022. Oh, nice. Well, so, congratulations. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm very excited and it was a very interesting hire because all all of this happened during the pandemic. Yeah. I'm I'm still supposed to go and see <laughs> the department to some degree. Oh so, wow! So yeah, it's it's really it's really uh, virtual, remote. But I'm I'm very happy so far uh, with what I have, all the discussions that I've had with colleagues there, and, and I'm very excited to start working. You'll be uh, yeah. you'll be near my um, my postdoc advisor Jeff Shaw up there. So yes, he's <laughs> great, and I, yeah, yep. yeah, I'm very much looking forward forward to working. Tell him with, that I you know I've asked him a couple times. He's been pretty busy because he just moved to York as well. Tell him that I. I'm still waiting for him to come on the podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell him. <laughs> so, um, so you, you, um, your your most recent work uh, was a postdoc in Jim DeCarlo's lab, and Jim's been on the show. And you guys are yep. Re- I, one of the reasons why I asked you about your engineering background is because you guys are quote unquote reverse engineering the visual system. Uh, right. I guess it all started off with uh, convolutional neural networks uh, and the feed forward story of convolutional neural networks. Um, but, and, and I don't know how you got into, uh, deep learning, but, uh, I do know that you were discouraged at one point from, uh, from studying deep learning or using it. Can you tell that story? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's an old story. It's like probably like now already 10, 11 years old. This was 2008 when I started my master's in, uh, biomedical engineering. And, um, I think. I, I kind of realized talking to a lot of people back then is that even saying the word or, or saying something like, oh, I'm working with a computational model and I'm in a neuroscience, mm. you know, program. It's sort of like you look down upon as a fake neuroscientist. You're not one of the real people that is doing the real neuroscience. Experiments? And, and because you're not doing experiments? Ex- because I was, at that time, I was not doing experiments mm. and I was mostly trying to like look at things like, for example, like, you know, I was doing like, working on autoencoders or neural network models <laughs> trained with backpropagation, <laughs> basically looking at how internals of these networks might match some neurophysiological data that I had or, or some behavioral data, aka the things that everybody, including me, is all excited about these days. But like, but that was before the quote-unquote deep learning revolution in 2012, right? So, It, it was. I think it was still popular back then among certain groups, I guess, mm. but I, I just did not, I mean, I couldn't have predicted that if I had worked on that, maybe... There could have been some nice papers or, or nice, you know, uh, studies uh, that I could have done. But I, but I, as I was saying that, like, it, I kind of got a bit discouraged because, like, I just started realizing that, oh, this is not the real neuroscience because I'm not sitting there with a slice of a mice brain patch clamping and, like, looking at neuronal voltages going up and down on a stupid monitor or something. Like, I kind of felt like, you know, that's that's the real deal. And and I remember I, I, I prepared a poster for a conference and I was going to present uh, this poster, which is work done with like these artificial neural networks. And I think I was so, you know, um, I was I was afraid that I would be ridiculed at that conference. And I, in the morning of that day, I kind of just got out of there. I was like, I'm not going to present this. Forget about <laughs> it. I'm going to go back and I'm going to do real neuroscience and, and, and look what I'm doing right now. So yeah. 
I, I have a, unfortunately, it's really ridiculous, but I, it's kind of pathetic. But I, there's a paper that I wrote back there. And all these ideas of like, oh, backprop, like re- reinforcement learning, autoencoder, student-teacher network. And I, it's, it's really badly written and I don't, don't look at it. But like, <laughs> I, I kind of use that as a joke with my friends. Like, uh, only if I had, you know, pursued this, you know, like all this work from Dan and Jim, like, oh, I was way before this. Oh. Anyways. Uh, it, it was uh, yeah. Did you tell it was Jim ridiculous that? And uh, no, I, I don't think uh, he will take that. Seriously. That paper is a joke. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah. yeah. Well, you were talking so real neuroscience. That's interesting because what you described with the mouse uh, brain slices and patch clamping is exactly how I cut my teeth in neuroscience because I was a real neuroscientist. Right. Do you think the definition of what a real neuroscientist is has changed now so that? Uh, people, you know, doing what you do is, um, do you feel, uh, like a valid neuroscientist now? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of validated myself by doing monkey physiology right. and like, like perturbation. So whenever I'm doing that, whenever I'm leading that life, I feel like as a real neuroscientist. <laughs> I mean, I, I still think that like, actually it helps to look at the brain and the biological data to get the right perspective about the system. So I definitely value that, but I think, with time, the importance of computational techniques and, and analysis techniques are so important now. Just, I think, as we were discussing, like there's a there's an answer that we are seeking, and that answer to me is in, is going to be in the form of that uh, those models. And so, like, if you're not talking that language, it sort of becomes difficult to communicate. It will become co- difficult to communicate any neuroscientific finding in the future. So, I think oh. in that regard, that might become the real you know, talk of neuroscientists in, in a few years if it hasn't been become that already. You're looking for an answer. What's the question? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, exactly. So the question uh, that I think a lot of people are interested in is that how do we solve certain tasks? Like at least that's the way how I, I look at form, formulating questions. Like I'm interested in neuroscience because I'm interested in a behavior and why I'm interested in that behavior particularly uh, maybe because if that behavior goes missing, I'll be in deep trouble. So like, that's kind of my sort of, um, way of getting into this, this space of like, okay, there's a behavior. Then what does it mean to do a behavior and how do we actually scientifically study it? So we measure this behavior. We operationalize that behavior with some tasks mm-hmm. and we measure that. And then the understanding or the question is that like, how does the brain solve that problem or, or give rise to that behavior? And then we start by building models of that behavior. And depending on what type of answers we're looking for, are we looking at how different neurons come together and produce that behavior or how different brain areas are participating in that behavior? We, we try to like, you know, uh, build specific units or parts of that model and, and look at them carefully. So at least that's how I formulate the question. Like the bigger question is like, okay, there's a big behavior and how are we actually solving it in our brain? Well, so uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, yeah, the story as I see it uh, from Jim's lab and from the convolutional neural network work is that you know you're trying to solve object uh, core object recognition, um, right. and you know it's it started off with a feed forward neural network, uh, you know that was built through many years, and then um, you know the deep learning uh, world came on the scene, and uh, you guys realized that these uh, networks accounted well for uh, predicted the brain activity well. And kind of went on from there, but uh, things have developed. So the reason why I asked what the question was uh, is because, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like an isolated system, right? So you have this convolutional neural network and 
it is modeled, the layers are modeled after the ventral visual processing hierarchical layers uh, in the brain. Um, and, you know, the goal is to understand uh, vision, right? And I don't know what that right. means. Um, do, you, do you feel like you guys have a, where are we in uh, understanding vision? <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's a lot of questions in in that <laughs> in the, those sentences because like let, let me maybe like explain a little bit about what I think of what understanding means maybe like so um I I think one definition of understanding that I have in my head is that it it is basically coming up with a falsifiable model of of something like if I understand something and you can tell me that it's a wrong understanding and and if I can basically have a model that is falsifiable which like I can make predictions and you can tell me that, oh, you're wrong. So for example, and there could be different levels of this understanding. So I understand how my coffee machine works because I can predict which button to press and the coffee is going to come out. So it's like a concrete prediction. You can test me like, oh, you can tell me like, go turn on the coffee machine and go press the wrong button. You're like, you don't have any understanding of how this machine works. But if I press the right button and the coffee starts coming out, but then if the machine breaks down, there's a different level of understanding. I might need to fix it. So like, then I, then you might, ask me like which part of the machine to fix and how does it work and there's a more detailed level of understanding required so in the same way i feel like understanding vision would require multiple levels and and i think one of it is like at the behavioral level like can i predict a behavior so that's where we start but but all of this sort of relies on models like concrete computational models at least that's what my current sort of un- <laughs> I was gonna say understanding like my, my current <laughs> sort of opinion of like what understanding for me mm. might mean is that like you have concrete computational models that make explicit predictions about you know how the, uh, how a system is gonna work or, or, or perform and then you you get to test it and that's sort of the understanding and then that's moving now the problem I think usually is that, if we define understanding this way, then we have to also sort of have common, I don't know, goals of like, what are we trying to understand? Like, what is that mm. behavior? What, and, and my current, uh, you know, view of the, of the field is that we actually don't have common goals like that. We are kind of like all doing our own things. And so I think it's kind of important to maybe like, have certain specific goals as like, this is what we are trying to predict. These are the you know, behavior of the system, these are the neural data or something that we are trying to predict and then come together, like come up with what are the best models that can do that. And some of it is we are currently trying to do do it with this um, website and platform called BrainScore um, and, and trying to have an integrative approach to like all kinds of data and all kinds of model and, and things like that. So how's BrainScore going? Are a lot of people using it? Yeah, I think the the user base of BrainScore is definitely increasing, mm. and and I think uh, we are we are having a conference now. Uh, well, we still submitted it uh, at Cosine, and we are potentially going to have a competition. It's like I, I think it's going to feel a little bit more like an ImageNet competition mm. or, or something like that. But my my personal opinion is that maybe uh, someone can look at BrainScore and say it's too early for some someone to like start making these models and or scoring them and being so concrete about right, it right but um but i think it has to be done like that's kind of my my goal and like it's if you ask me where vision like understanding of vision is to me like pointing to some kind of platform like brain score is a concrete answer that i can give like that's my way of quantifying it well, so, yeah it's, so it's a benchmark and but you know on the other hand uh benchmarks have gotten some flack because like you were talking about uh 
we don't know whether th- that's the right benchmark, right? Whether it's the right question. Yeah. So it is concrete, yeah. but um, I guess we're progressing and asking better questions. W- would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there is no like three or four benchmarks that will define our understanding. So I think the goal is to have more and more benchmarks and hopefully you, we will see that like because it's the same brain that is giving rise to all that data so if you're actually modeling that particular brain then we should be converging to like a very small space of models Mm. eventually at least that's the dream Um, so of course like there could be multiple different benchmarks and different ways people are probing the system but i think the value add of brain score is that if we can get those all those experimentalists and modelers on board then they can provide those data or provide those sort of benchmarks as also targets for current systems instead of saying that like oh you know your network is never going to predict that mm. like okay that's okay that's fine i mean the networks are falsified under all possible benchmarks so it's not a big you know sentence to say but it's just like how is the network failing how do we know it is failing and like what could be the additions that you can make to the models that it may- improves it i think to actually have a good quantitative tangible grasp on those questions I think you need a platform like BrainScore to actually be there. I wanted to ask you about falsification because you know, you've talked yeah. about how that's one of the useful parts of the modeling uh, push is that they are falsifiable. Um, but then you know you have models like the feedforward convolutional neural network uh, that predict what is it like fifty percent of the neural variance somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. How does one falsify a model? Yeah. So I I don't think I mean. In, in the in the sense of falsification, those models are all falsified anyways. But then the question is, how do you build the next best model? When I think of that, I, I feel like given some numbers like that, it then makes me kind of figure out if I build a better model, it should at least be better than the current numbers that are coming out of, you know, the feedforward neural networks or, or something like that. So I, I think... Of course, you, you I mean, the question is that you dismiss the entire space of models or family of models uh, as like completely useless. Or do you say like, that's a good start. Let's build upon that and start adding elements to that to build the next best model. So I, I think I, I, I'm mostly motivated by this idea that, yeah, like we have a good grasp and thanks to machine learning and AI for that, for actually building these real models and not like toy models. <laughs> and so now that we have these models, let's capitalize on this momentum and and get get going and build the next probably build the next best models although i'm I'm talking about models in this way but i my personal you know life is mostly spent doing experiments trying to put holes on that Mm. on those modeling frameworks or or models so I'm, i'm actually very happy that those are all falsified because i feel like that's my job to falsify them and but the other part of my job that I feel like is important is that it's not only just to falsify them, but also get some data that is in the same scale and in the same sort of spirit that would help build the next better, best model or something. So it's just not good to shit on them. It's just also provide some, you know, material for them to work on, chew on and become a little bit better. So what, what in your, uh, so you're doing a lot of experimentation. Uh, what, what's faster, modeling or experiments? experiments uh are faster uh yeah uh i mean i think building a better model is way more difficult (sighs) than doing an experiment uh this is yeah i i I think i'll debate anybody about that because i think for me like you know alex so again depends on which field you are if you are building this model for ai or purposes or like so there of course modeling is way more faster than any behavioral experiment or any neural experiment but if we are trying to build a model of the brain it's it's a so it's like a 
we were discussing about this engineering thing is like okay i have a I have a problem of like how is the brain working, but the solutions cannot be anything. It's like constrained by this biological system. So there's like a specific solution that we are trying to look at. And I think aligning the models with that is a very, I mean, you, I can build a model that might solve action perception or action prediction better than the current system, but that might not align with the brain. I think when I said like the modeling of is lower, I think it's that bit, which is like having models that are more aligned with brain. Because, you know, like 2012, AlexNet came up uh, and then now we don't even talk about AlexNet in terms of like computer vision. I think no no serious computer vision scientist would say like AlexNet is my model that I start <laughs> with. But it came to neuroscience and it's still here. We are still using AlexNet. So like I think things come to neuroscience and they stay for a longer time because it's just very difficult to falsify or like discriminate among these models even. And I think there are maybe in your, I mean, for, for us, there's some, some of them are like, there's some deeper questions in here as well, maybe, because like when we say we have a model of primate vision, like, like what do we actually mean? <laughs> do we have a model of a specific human or, or like a specific monkey or are we modeling the shared variants across humans or monkey or, you know, are we developing a model of the, you know, all the possibilities like a superset of vision? Like, mm. so, so, so how well should a model of object recognition even predict behavior of, of one subject or some neuron that I'm recording for in, in a monkey brain. I think we need to think carefully about those, those questions because like, yeah, sure. Like the model might predict, you know, one neuron in a monkey's brain at 50% explained variance. But then how well does any other neuron in any other, mm. you know, human brain predict that other, another human's IT neurons or something like so? I think quantifying and, and sort of setting up the ceilings based on what we actually are modeling. Are we modeling individual human beings or individual monkeys or, you know, this shared monkey population? I think those questions are sort of important. And then maybe we are done with like predicting core object recognition feed forward responses because, you know, one monkey predicts another monkey at 50% and there's no way you can improve beyond that mm. or something like so. It's to me, I think because of these kind of, and I'm, of course, as I'm saying it, I'm realizing that like this is basically like it's, it's empirically challenged in some yeah. sense. Like that, like, it's like, so it's, it's actually the experiments that have to provide these answers. And we are sort of like limited by technology and how well we can probe the system. So that's why I think slower. Yeah. Okay. Well, you said ceiling. So, uh, the way you've talked about it, it makes me, it's a fuzzy ceiling, I suppose. They're fuzzy ceilings uh, in that respect. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you're, I'm slowly <laughs> coming around to the fact that. Modeling takes a long time. <laughs> I did. I didn't do any deep learning modeling. I did like a, a kind of a psychological model. It was very simple, right? And it took a long time. But experiments, I had to go in every day, and it just was, uh, you know, years to g publish a single paper. No, I, I see where you're coming from, and I, I totally. I mean, that has been sort of my experience as well. I mean, it takes a long time to train a monkey to implant yeah. the arrays and, and yeah. get the data and maybe, you know, yeah, the array doesn't get implanted well, then you have to like implant again. Like there are multiple problems that can come up. Um, but I just feel like at the end of the day, you have some data. And if you have designed your experiments properly, that's like, especially in neuroscience, which I think is still in the dark ages, like it's sort <laughs> of like novel data, you know, it's like just, <laughs> it's anything you do, you can, you can basically, it's like, it's novel data and a target for like a model to sort of predict. And I think in that way, it's faster because like I can build a model like one minute, you know, just, you know, put some two convolutional layers together mm -hmm. and call it a model. But is that really useful or is that really taking the field forward? 
I mean, I, I mean, I, maybe I answered it too fast about like you know experiments are fa- uh, slower. Yeah, you need to think about uh, sorry, that more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I might have to think about it, but I think, that, but I think that I was, I'm trying to sort of like tell you a little bit about why I think modeling is actually going to be slower, especially like modeling the brain. There's physical time, but then there's also heartache time. So maybe those are two orthogonal <laughs> things, right? So like the the other question would be yeah. like, where do you experience more heartache and and uh, obstacles? And uh, do you think modeling would be the answer to that? <laughs> Again, depending on <laughs> on your experiences. <laughs> so, like, if if I if I am like running a monkey, like after I have like, pull, uh, you know, uh, brought a monkey to the lab and done an experiment, I have zero energy to do yes. and think about anything right. else right. in the day. So it's like I'm done for the day, and um and I think that way, yes, it's it's a lot more. I mean, at least because that's the experience I have had. I cannot tell how bad it is for like a modeling person to, or how bad it's like to come up with, you know. Oh. Like a giant, mo- I mean, my code. I feel like my it's, code. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like most is like the libraries are not loading, the right, version is right. not correct. Blah, blah. So like those are the problems that I usually, you know, face. Uh, but but yeah, but at the end of the day, the, once the model is training, and I, I I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I feel a modeler is going to be more disappointed because the models don't really predict much more than the previous model. That's what. But like the neuroscience experiments, if it's designed properly to begin with, I think it's always going to give more insight all right just a biased opinion maybe <laughs> yeah we're all we're all biased as we know all right co so um again correct me if i'm wrong but uh the way that i see it there's this core object recognition story that at the core of it uh is a feed forward convolutional neural network and um you know you guys in jim's lab uh, have done a lot to explain neural data so that's kind of like the basis the way that i see it and then from there you've done a lot of other work. Like you've, you've started adding bells and whistles like recurrence and you've controlled, you've uh, synthesized images to uh, predict, you know, which neuron is going to uh, be driven by a particular image. So, you, so you're making the models more complicated. Um, and I've heard you argue that <laughs> these, that what we need is more complicated models. Whereas, you know, from a, from an, a, philo- a philosophy of science classic perspective, what we like are simple models, right? And because part of the problem with these deep learning models is that we don't exactly know how they're doing what they're doing. And to use a complicated model to explain a complicated organ like the brain, uh, there's a pushback on how much that actually buys us in terms of understanding. But you argue that, no, we actually need them more complicated. Why is that? Yeah, I think it depends on how you define c- complication because I, I think the reason why I might say that it's we need more complicated models because the models are not really predicting what we ought, we, we set out to predict. So I think making them simpler, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, I, don't, I don't think that's going to be the answer because the brain is complicated. So anything that is a simulation of the brain will look complicated in some sense. In the other sense, it will not look complicated because if you have correspondences and, al- and alignments with the brain, you can point to a part of the model and say, oh, that's mm. V4. And like you can say like that's V4 in the brain. So that, in that way, it might be become less complicated over the course of it. It's just a definition of like what complication and like what is interpretability and what is understanding. I think those and because there is no objective definition of those things, I think, I think these kind of mm-hmm. conversations mm-hmm. usually, you know, Lead nowhere. I mean, I, I, I'm th- trying to think. I'm trying to think of this thing. Like, for example, 
when I was in my in my graduate uh, uh, studies and during my PhD, we had models of motion after effect. And uh, if I spoke to anyone like at VSS or SFN or Cosine about these models, uh, everybody would say like, oh, this is completely understandable, interpretable, simple models that we have intuitions about, which is like, okay, you show coherent, uh, so you show a random motion pattern and you have these motion detectors, they're all firing and they're all firing equally. There is no, adapt- like basically if you, after that, if you show a stimulus that is moving upward, the upward neurons will do something and it's going to be like some response, um, mm-hmm. which is going to be higher. Uh, compared to the rest of the group, if you are only showing upward motion for a long time, those are the neurons that are going to fire and get fatigued. And then when you show like a random pattern, you will see like everything else is firing higher and the, and the upward motion detectors are kind of firing a slightly lower. So overall, you will have, you know, bias towards saying, okay, mm. it's going, maybe the motion is going downwards, something like that. And this can be modeled and people have modeled this and, and, and I think those models compared to artificial neural networks now, like they might be considered, you know, simpler, more intuitive, understand, but understandable models, uh, less complicated. Now I'm thinking like, let's go to 5000 BC. People are talking Tamil or Sanskrit or I know, Greek <laughs> or some other language trying to explain, like I'm trying time traveling back then trying to explain the motion adaptation model hmm. to them. They'll be like, go away. Like, you know, what are you talking about? This is not, I don't understand anything. So how these models are not real models of the brain. Like, I don't know. And I think I feel like the same thing is happening now, which is like artificial neural network. But, but these, but, but, the, but remember, like the mo- motion model that I, that I just mentioned was predicting this, this adaptation phenomena, this behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, the goal of this mo- modeling. It had some relevance with how people have looked at the brain and neurons. And so, but if I tell this in 5000 BC, people will be like, I don't know. This is not mapping into our worldview. And I think the same thing might happen right now with convolution neural networks and some terminologies and things like that. It's like, okay, this is too complicated. This math, I don't, I cannot like fit into my low dimensional kind of behavioral space of like how this high dimensional you know, areas are functioning or like responding. So I don't take that complaint seriously because I think with more familiarity with these terms and, and models, that, that complaint is just going to go away. Hmm. As the models become more and more powerful in predicting different behaviors and we will see, for example, use of having these models in sort of like, you know, real world applications. And I think that kind of fear of, oh, this is a too complicated of a system is just, gonna go away and for those for whom like this won't go away they'll just probably have to live with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) but uh, maybe the more interest i I think one of the reasons why i feel people like simpler models is it it allows them to like maybe think through like if the model gets stuck what to do to improve it and i think that to me is like a real value of having a simpler more interpretable model and there, it's a question of efficiency. If you can have a complicated model kind of self-correct itself or self-improve itself, which is kind of a future goal, maybe that might just be a more efficient way of dealing with this problem mm. than, than kind of like humans kind of coming up with their own intuitions of like what is a better model and things like that. And, and I think we were discussing about this engineering background. To me, that might be something I'm more prone to accepting because of my engineering background because i just feel like there's a question there's a solution and these are just tools to get to the solution doesn't matter if i intuitively kind of understand it or not as long as it's aligned with the brain data and things like that it's fine with me. so one of the i actually got uh even more excited to talk to you because after we had set up uh this episode uh someone in my course asked um 
because I talk in my course, I talk a lot about I use uh, Jim's work and your work to talk about convolutional neural networks and how, you know, how it relates to the ventral visual stream. And then someone in the course asked, what about the dorsal stream? Because I talk about the two visual streams. Right. And uh, this goes back to the question of like what it means to understand vision. And I know that one of the things that you're doing. Uh, so the, the question was like, uh, why aren't there models for the dor dorsal stream as well? Why is it all ventral stream? And I know that you are starting to incorporate, and you have some background with the dorsal stream as well. Um, and maybe we right. should talk about what the dorsal stream is, just uh, to, to bring everyone up to speed. But what? Uh, what do you, uh, so are you just starting to incorporate other brain areas now? What? What is uh, your? Well, yeah. Well, the first thing is that maybe if that student is interesting in doing a PhD or a postdoc, send them uh, my way <laughs> because that's that's the kind of question I was also asking about. Like, okay, what is the dorsal stream doing? Because I, I had spent like five, six years studying the dorsal stream, which is slightly above, sits above the ventral stream in, in sort of anatomical location in, in the brain. Let's say what the dorsal stream is, like what it classically is. Uh, do you want to say it? Or you, <laughs> I'm happy to as well. <laughs> you, you can say it. Okay. So yeah, so classically, there are two ventral, uh, two visual streams. Um, it hits V1, and then it kind of branches off into a ventral stream, which is uh, what the massive amounts of Neuro AI and core object recognition is about where uh, it gets um, processed over hierarchical areas up through V2, V4, IT until uh, we suddenly have neurons that respond to whole objects. But the uh, dorsal stream is classically the where or how stream, um, which is much more related to uh, the motion and spatial uh, aspects and uh, our actions, right? So um, it's activity yeah. related to, and, th and that's where I spent my. Um, career is basically from more or less in the dorsal stream yeah so i don't know did, did, i don't did, did i explain that okay <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh, i i'm usually now like i think i'm usually very careful about assigning yes. some behavioral function to areas yes. i mean mostly i start talking about anatomical locations and like who knows like you might find that you know dorsal stream is just big part of core object recognition <laughs> right. It's, well, well, I mean, they're, they're, it, yeah, I mean, they're, so the thing that has been, um, I guess, always known, but not paid so much attention to is that there's a lot of crosstalk between the dorsal and the ventral stream. But we've kind of studied them in isolation, right, as two uh, individual separate things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a sort of I, I see that as an opportunity uh, to sort of like, really take this sort of um, studies forward and trying to incorporate um, looking at dorsal stream as well. Uh, just one, one point I wanted to make is that I think there are folks who are beginning to build models of the dorsal stream in the same way as, you know, the ventral stream modeling has gone. I think I recently saw a paper from Chris Pack's uh, group, and I'm sorry if I'm forgetting other authors. In there. I, th I think um, Blake Richard was part of it, Patrick was part like there there there's, there's a, I think it's a bioarchive at least. Huh. There's work done from Brian uh, Tripp's group trying to model these systems like of course like dorsal stream has a lot of modeling you know yeah. prior modeling work that is not kind of similar to the convolution neural network uh stuff but but i think people are beginning to build them and and there are different objectives that they're proposing as like sort of normative framework for like how the dorsal stream gets sort of trained up like i, I think those are nice hypotheses and we'll see like whether the data actually you know supports those you know models or stuff like that but i think for me sort of trying to get into this area those are really nice work because like that gives me some baseline ideas or baseline models to start testing and probing you know w when i start designing my experiments i i think those models will really help me 
to sort of uh, make a good experimental design. Uh, but are you building? Um, so I actually don't know like what kind of uh, model because it wouldn't be just the same. Would you wouldn't just use a convolutional neural network to model the dorsal stream, right? Um, and so, are you building models yourself also, or are you going to incorporate? I I have not personally built any models right now. I've just been testing some of the models. Like so, I started testing some of the models that were like mostly used for action perception or action recognition mm -hmm. models. They have these like temporal filters. Like they're still convolutional. It's just like yeah. more dimensions to the convolution. It's like a time dimension. So I think those are like good starting points because like they're easy to build maybe because they can use the same kind of like training uh, procedure. But I think we have to at some point become a little bit, be, be okay with being a little bit, you know, uh, go lower in terms of prediction because we need to move from static kind of domain to a dynamic domain and and the, i think my usual experience has been that whenever you go you make this jump like all these models start to kind of like not perform as well not not predict the neural responses as well and so i think to me like that might be one of the reasons why maybe some people are building these models and they're not really coming out because they don't really predict anything mm -hmm. like so maybe backing up a little bit like my main um sort of interest in this um dorsal ventral interaction question kind of started when I was mostly recording, you know, showing static images to the to the monkeys and recording their responses in IT. And I, and these are, you know, uh, objects that are either like natural photographs or, you know, some kind of synthesized uh, images. And I, I started thinking about my previous work in dorsal stream, and it was like about motion and, you know, like, mm -hmm. there were dots moving and gratings moving. But if I think about the real world, like I never see dots moving right. or gradings moving in the real world. Like there's objects that are moving. And to me, like if I my my if I have to have any real world relevance of my current research, I just felt like, you know, it's a dynamic world. I'm moving my eyes and I'm moving myself and the the objects are moving. And if I think of these questions or think of these behaviors, dorsal stream kind of pops up in any literature search mm -hmm. that I do. It's like self-motion you know motion of objects or motion of like not objects but like maybe motion of like some something in my visual field but but then i was wondering like you know like it has this nice representation of what the object is and if the object starts to move is it all is, does all all of it fall apart like what happens like so just out of curiosity i just started recording from these neurons and when the objects were actually moving and then i started kind of you know this is this work has not been published but it's like the, the sort of the uh, uh, preliminary result is that, well, IT kind of can predict where the object is headed, uh, where it is moving. It's not, we know from previous studies from Jim's lab that from looking at IT representations, you can tell where an object is. Right. This was from Ha Hong and Dan, 2016. Where the object is located, you can tell in a static image. So there's one trivial solution where, okay, like if you can tell where the object is located at different time bins, you can maybe combine that information to tell where the object is headed mm -hmm. or where the object is going. What I started finding is that like, it's not only that, it's like you can just take a snapshot of like, like maybe after you have started this movie, 200 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds later, you can just look a small time bin and you can tell where the object has been going. So it's like there's a predictive signal of where mm -hmm. the objects are headed. So. That sort of like, then I started thinking like, maybe this is coming from the dorsal stream or is it, you know, like, but, but again, these are again, like ways of thinking that I've kind of discarded in the last few years. So I, I feel like the way to think about this is like, can a vanilla ventral stream model explain this neural responses already? Then not to invoke dorsal stream at all. 
maybe they will fail and then the dorsal stream models are actually necessary to you know account for this neural responses and also the behaviors that i can test based on these kind of stimuli so that has sort of been my approach and the dorsal and and the quick update on the ventral stream results is that these models they they're not really predictive of these kind of responses mm. at all to some degree that so gives me hope so, yeah. <laughs> it's always good to have hope when you're starting your uh, career <laughs> although not that you're starting your career but your new your new start yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but you said you've discarded um thinking about it uh in that way from like uh different brain areas is that because uh you've discarded thinking about different assigning roles to individual brain areas or yeah sure okay. yeah absolutely i think i mean that that whole way of thinking is like i think it's primitive it's not going to lead to be- like the brain is doing what it is to like make us go through the day and like all areas are coming together in some form or the other and so i think it's i will never i, I don't want to come up with the answer that like dorsal is doing blah blah like i think it's just part of a system that is trying to solve a behavior and the answer is going to be here is a model that has elements in it that are corresponding to neurons in the dorsal stream and together they you know solve a behavior now you can ask the question if if i really want to satisfy someone like what is the dorsal stream doing you can start doing perturbation experiments in the model or in the brain and say like what happens to the behavior if i take out you know part of the dorsal stream or part right. of this and that and but then i'm i'm mostly worried like what is the answer going like my answer is going to be like oh it takes a 10% hit for video a versus video c like i feel like those are the kind of answers that are really going to come out but people are going to i mean i might spin this off as like oh but this is about you know function x or like it's about something about predictive coding or, or i can give the answer in that form but i think at the end of the day it's just going to be a big lookup table of like you perturb this part of the dorsal stream you get x hit on this particular behavior this particular video so I, i that's why i feel like my answers need to be in the in the you know in the modeling kind of uh, framework yeah words uh, we're we're limited by our language uh, it turns out this spe- very special uh, thing that we have language also is very limiting in some respects i suppose yeah but i i think if the models can relate back to the language i think then some of the you know uh, problem or the tension might be relieved a little bit mm. because i think now there so for example i mean this is maybe slightly off topic from the dorsal ventral discussion but like if you look at a model of ventral stream like you can look at brain score and like say okay resnet 101 or something has some numbers associated like some mm-hmm. scores i can see why people have a problem with that model and why people say this is not interpretable because like there are parts of the model that are just, just don't know what it is like how does it map to the brain like i can call like mm-hmm. some part as it or some part there's a thousand different things in between that i have no clue of what they are and like it, maybe the model is not performing because of those you know computations that are happening in those layers how do i relate this back to the brain or something so i i feel like that is a real problem and i think it is in our interest to start coming up with commitments to different parts of the model and then falsifying them based on those commitments if mm-hmm. so like a um, interpretable model should, to me should be like if i write a So what is the interpretable thing in neuroscience like a paper like the abstract of the paper <laughs> is completely should be at least interpretable to anybody yeah. so if a model has components to it that can talk to each part of that abstract like you know you have a task you have a neuron you say something and if you can basically map your abstract to parts of the of the model and if the model can map onto the parts of the abstract clearly that i think just gives the model interpretability and i think mm. 
that level of crosstalk and language, I think, should exist. And I, I think that language I'm, you know, trying to sort of develop myself to even when I'm thinking yeah. about modeling and experiments. Well, I mean, after all that about how uh, we shouldn't assign roles to individual brain areas, uh, you are doing some inactivation uh, experiments, right? So what's going on, what's going on there? Why are you inactivating individual brain areas? <laughs> yeah, so I think that that's basically try to maybe so there are a couple of studies that I think at least I have done recently. One has been already published, which is like inactivating ventral PFC and and looking at core object recognition behavior, mm-hmm. and also looking at representations in IT when the monkey was doing that task, and. Uh, the goal was to basically expand or, or, or test whether these feedback loops that are existing between these areas, are they actually playing a role in that specific behavior that, that we are, you know, studying? Because the current models are incomplete and they're not predicting enough. So like it, it's kind of makes sense that maybe there are other areas and there are other connections that are, <laughs> you know, you know, important. So that is not to say like PFC does X, right? Like it's, it's like uh, it does everything apparently. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I mean, I'm sure it does a lot of things. It's just like for for me to actually ground this problem, it was more like what what kind of role or what kind of uh, signals do I at least from the inactivation? It was like what kind of signals go missing in IT when I inactivate them? Mm-hmm. In I inactivate PFC and what kind of sort of uh, deficits do I see in behavior? And then the data again, as I was saying, is is not like oh you cannot. Um, identify objects in in an occluded scene or something it's not an answer like that it's mostly like here is a big <laughs> data set it's like it's not satisfactory to many people right. like a, here is a giant data set it's clearly like you see like there's an average effect <laughs> pfc no pfc okay i've shown you this there is a prediction that is coming out of a model that is like this model is a feed forward model it might not be doing xyz and Voila, like they, they, well, like that, those are the images where these effects are also much more concentrated on. So there is a story there. It's like, okay, it's clearly part of a system that is not the feed forward system that is like maybe going beyond the current feed forward system. But like at the end of the day, I think the next step is to build a model that has a u- unit or module that is called, you know, VLPFC mm-hmm. and perturbing that should should produce the same kind of deficits. It's it's like a and this is where I think it's a very hard thing to do. It's actually an easier thing for me to like perturb PFC and like get this data yeah. and say like, okay, this area is involved. But to then build this model, I think that's gonna be really difficult. And I think and, and there are limitations to perturbation data, for example. I think um and this is might be like relevant to the conversation about perturbation experiments. Because I think even even after this perturbation experiment, I think actually recording in that specific area with the same kind of task and same kind of stimuli might be more constraining for the next generation of models. And that is exactly what I'm doing currently. But at the same time, I was thinking like what kind of perturbation experiments might be like, you know, may have more uh, benefit for the kind of models that we have right now. And that kind of led me to um, developing, mostly we say developing a lot, but it's like basically testing... Um, this sort of chemogenetic strategies where you inject um, a virus in a brain area. And for in my case, I also implanted a UTA array on top of it. So we injected dreads in V4 that was supposed to be like, you know, silencing or, or you know, down-regulating the activity in V4. And then we can, implanted can you, a UTA Sorry, can you say what dreads are? Because we haven't even, I don't think we've even, I think we've mentioned them on the podcast before, but what, what are dreads? And then I also want to ask you, so you uh, injected and then you 
in a separate surgery than you implanted? No, it was done on the same. Uh, same day. It, it was done on the same exact surgery. Okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. So, so the key, so, so, so the basic, I think, idea is that you inject a virus that that ends up uh, sort of manifesting as a receptor in a neuron that you can activate or deactivate with various means. It's the same idea with optogenetics, the same idea with chemogenetics. Mm-hmm. In in the optogenetics to to sort of activate or, you know, that particular receptor, you need to show, shine light on, on, on that neuron, um, right. uh, on that area. For, for chemogenetic, you need to basically inject a drug uh, into, into the system. And, uh, so there are some pros and cons of these two different or multiple different things. So for example, you're kind of like limited in terms of where you might want to inject for opto because you know, light delivery is tricky because mm-hmm. it's, you have to be mainly maybe, you know, restricted to the surface of the, of the brain. Deeper structures might be very difficult to target at scale. Maybe you can target like one or two neurons. In, in chemogenetic, you can basically inject a vir- uh, the, the virus anywhere you want in the brain and it kind of gets activated through this sort of like injection that you do in the bloodstream. So it basically activates or, or tries to activate all these receptors that has been, uh, you know, um, produced, but then there is like temporal limitations. So opto can like go very fast, quick on off. But mm-hmm. the, the key, the dreads are more like mucimol in some sense. Like it's on, the effect is on for some time and How long? they're usually How long weaker. Is it? A week. In my wow. calculation. No, 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 uh, no, 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 weaker. <laughs> not <A> weaker. weaker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would be, that would not be so good. Uh, I think it's most, <laughs> so from my, from my, Estimates, I think, is mostly on for like maybe a couple of hours and sort of oh, okay. goes. So it's like very similar. Musimol. At least the main yeah. time is like Musimol. So, yeah. um, and what, what, what I've been doing is like we have these arrays that you can actually test, you know, you can show the same images over and over again after you have injected the activated drug and you can sort of see how quickly or what is the kind of mm. um, time course of neurons responding lower or higher. And then you can have behavior on top of it, like the monkey is also behaving on different blocks. So you can kind of see like, you know, there are some deficits that are coming up and then the deficits sort of like go away at the end of the, mm. at the end of the day or something. So I think I, I'm at least thinking of like, how do I take this and like make it useful for models? Like, okay, I can say like a V4 is involved in, you know, object recognition. That's sure. like, I don't know. <laughs> Not too many people will be interested to listen to, to hear that, <laughs> this anymore. But, but if, if, if you give me like, okay, brain score has like thousand models that all have like 0.5 correlation for V4 activity. But now I give you some V4 inactivation data and then 900 of them fall off and they cannot really predict the kind of, you know, pattern of deficits that V4 has. That might be as, you know, important than, than tool or maybe important problem but but as you see like here you need to have a model that has like a brain tissue mapping of v4 and you know where are you injecting the the right virus in the model versus in the actual brain so i mean there are there are parts of this problem that are still more complicated but i think this the chemogenetic strategy at least for areas like v4 you know where you're injecting and these are mostly retinotopic areas so there is some level of um you know a correspondence in the models and then you have a neural data on that. So you can actually just say like, you know, like, I don't care about like your assumptions, just like fit to the neural data. Mm-hmm. You have V4 neural data with and without activation. You have, 
you know, your model with and without activation, just fit to all the data that you have got and then predict what happens to IT or predict what happens to behavior in the model. And that's how you validate the model. I think that is a very, I think that's a stronger form of using sort of this perturbation experiments because I think it's not uncommon to see you know, experiments where someone says, you know, this area I perturbed did nothing happen. And someone said like, no, 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 you didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, right. if the answers are always yes and no, I think it will just stay there. It has to be sort of falsification of like competing models. And then maybe some data will be more useful than the others. The other, I think, upshot of having something like this is that imagine you have uh, monkeys that are doing these tasks in their home cages. Like we have a lot of monkeys that are trained up and they do these tasks all day in their home cages whenever they want because they have a tablet, they can do these tasks. Yeah. You can pair this up with, with that system and you just need one person to just go and inject like something in, in, in a monkey. And then basically you have days where you can like, you know, run this with an, with, with some part of their brain, quote unquote, deactivated. And you can multiplex even with the viruses. You can like, you know, target inhibitory neurons, excitatory neurons. You can have different viruses inject in different parts of the brain that have their own corresponding activator drugs. So that, that I think there's a lot of kind of interesting data sets that can come out of this approach, which should bear on, on the modeling question. Absolutely. How much of your uh, future, uh, what I want to know is, is like your, the vision that you have for your own lab and how much of it is going to be this kind of work and how much of it is going to be modeling and so on. I, I think a lot of this is going to be this kind of work and like just pushing the boundaries of experimental neuroscience. I think the modeling is like, it's, it's, it's like that's going to be the backbone of the lab. Like the computational part is like no answers can be provided from the lab if there is no model attached to it. Mm -hmm. So I will be collaborating with others. I'll have people you know, working with people in the lab who will be building probably these models as well and testing them out. But I think that I, I, I don't think I will, I will be, you know, happy at the end of my <laughs> career if like I did not improve like, like a model or something of the system of even after doing all these different experiments. So it's going to be a mix of that. I, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I should probably mention this. Like I'm not. Honestly, I'm not really interested in building the best model for core object recognition or dynamic okay. visual perception or visual cognition, uh, just for the sake of building that model and understanding how the brain works. I mean, I don't quite motivate myself that way. I think, and it's kind of, I mean, kind of interesting because like, I think for training purposes, these were the most concrete fields and most concrete labs that I thought, okay, this is where I should get trained. But I think I kind of wake up every day to sort of think that maybe my research is going to help someone's life. And I think oh. this is kind of like, oh, wow, what a great person you are. But like, I really, I mean, I think, I, I'm going to tell you a, like a small story. Uh, maybe this is, please, you can cut it out if it's not relevant. I, I was, I was, so I've been working in visual neuroscience and people know that I work in visual neuroscience back home in India. And what do you mean people know? Like the, like India knows? Like your my, family? my family, my family, okay. my family, sorry, people. One billion people know me. No, <laughs> like five people, I'm, one billion okay. people know that. That's I more know than, that's me. more than, uh, that's know what I do. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. So among those five people, or maybe like 10, <laughs> Indian families tend to be, be kind of, so among those 50 people, <laughs> then there are some of them that I don't, I think they have some idea of like what I might be doing, which is completely wrong. And I think I had this encounter with someone, uh, and, uh, unfortunately their kid, um, 
had had uh, got diagnosed um to be in the autism uh, spectrum mm-hmm. uh and so i i was meeting them and they 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 asked me like oh so what are you working on these days and i'm like okay i'm working on visual cognition i'm saying stuff like how do we reason and things like that and um this this person turns to their kid and and tells the, them that like you, you know your elder brother will one day like you know is working towards the solutions like and and the kid is like very young can understand anything of what they're saying but they were basically telling them that like he is going to come up with the solution that will cure you right. or, and it just felt like i just was feeling like i'm i was thinking like i'm failing to do that mm. i'm failing I'm, i cannot find any connection to like you know what this translates to and and that really i mean that was kind of a pivotal like like a point where i started thinking like i need to find real connections with what i'm doing and how that really impacts or translates not just this you know like the first paragraph of a grant saying like you know i'm working in dyslexia or like mm-hmm. is this is relevant to like blah blah it's schizophrenia. like really trying yeah. to schizophrenia exactly <laughs> so like so really trying to find and then i started actually i mean that's going to be a at least some part of my 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 future research is like trying to find out how you know having these models that are these concrete models with brain maps how are they beneficial to diagnosis and potentially treatment strategies in some of these neurological disorders and i've started working a little bit towards these goals and i'm i'm very excited about this because i think there are real benefits and i think you're mentioning about this like neural control studies that i think those are the kind of studies that are really um sort of giving me hope that like there is a way to like contribute to this to this part that's of like a, my uh, desire list. that's kind of a magical thing so so that wasn't your motivator for a long part of your career but uh from a place of guilt <laughs> it's yeah but but it's developed <laughs> guilt into guilt is a great <laughs> guilt is a great motivator uh but it's developed <laughs> into like a real motivation for you but i i never had that i i yeah. i don't care about helping people and so I always <laughs> felt bad writing schizophrenia in a grant, for example, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit philosophical. Like, I don't even know. I cared about helping people in some way. Like, maybe I'm basically thinking I'm trying to help people, but I'm just trying to help myself. Maybe thinking like, oh, what if I have Alzheimer's or something in my <sighs> old age? But like, yeah, but I, I think currently, at least I do feel like that gives me some level of satisfaction to think that there is potentially some link of my research that might be getting help to some for for someone yeah. i think i mean uh, it is interesting to think how through our work i'm uh, through your work through people's work uh your interests change and uh as you develop and as you ask different questions and answer different questions it's just kind of a magical thing so uh, that's uh, thanks for telling that story Yeah I I think that that definitely like impacted me a lot so but but I am I'm also like I think these are related issues like I think pr- like you were asking about understanding and progress and like things are like understanding vision and visual cognition I think the moment we start to like measure our understanding like in the brain score way or something like then I think these answers to like the clinical translation becomes more concrete maybe mm. like like So I think they're very related is just for me it, it took me a little bit to like figure out and maybe I'm still working on it like to figure out where exactly are the most relevant parts of it and I I I think my interaction with a lot of folks uh 
who are doing autism research like really helped. So for example, I've been in touch with uh, Ralph Eros at, at Caltech and we are mm. sort of collaborating on a project. And I think those th- like those discussions and like reading the, the papers like really, I think, I, I think they have a lot to contribute to what I do. And I think our way of thinking about the system has a lot to contribute to, to that, that research. Interesting. So, um, do you, you, know, I, you mentioned the uh, image synthesis work a right. little bit. Yeah. Um, can we talk briefly about that? Because maybe you can just um, describe what the work is. I, I talked with Jim about this when he was on the podcast, but uh, we can kind of recap because it was kind of splashy, right? Um, and yeah, exactly. I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on how you currently think about that work as well. Yeah, so this work was was done in collaboration with Puya Bashivan, um, who's at, at McGill now, and then so me, Puya, and Jim were, were basically, uh, we did the study together. And, um, so the basic idea was that, um, we, we were recording in V4 and we have models of V4 neuron. And the question was that, can you from the model, you know, come up with stimuli using the model? Can you come up with stimuli that puts the neuron in specific desired states? And, and one of the states that we considered was like, let's make it fire the most it we can. So the so, model so, will tell me. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. So, so this is the control aspect of understanding. Yeah, exactly. So that 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 is like you know prediction and control, and this is the control part. So mm-hmm. the models could predict, but maybe they couldn't control because maybe the images that were synthesized. I mean, there is a part where there is a separate technique, which is the how are you synthesizing the images, and maybe there are ways in mm. which that doesn't need to be attached to the model, that that specific model that you're using to predict. That they can be two separate things. But, but again, like for us, it was like, you know, we were using the same model to come up with the images as well. So we ah. came up with the images. We we're trying to control the neuron and we said, we were targeting like, okay, V4, let's make this neuron fire as high as possible. That was one of the goals. The other goal was let's take a bunch of V4 neurons that ca- kind of share the same receptive field, um, properties and try to set one of them to very high and the others to be very low. This is like a population level, you know, control. So these were the two goals that at least we thought, let's start here. And then we were asking like, okay, this question seems like, you know, you've heard of this before because like, oh, what does V4 neurons do? Like they, they respond right. to curvatures. What does V1 neurons do? They're like gabors and orientation and V2 is like texture and like IT is faces. Like now you come up with the stimuli and you look at them and like, oh, I don't know what to call them. Like maybe they're something. But then for us, we kind of like ignored that problem. We just said like, okay, let's, just take these new mm. images and like see whether the model's prediction is right because then that at least should show that like using these models you can control the neurons to some some degree and that 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 was basically the study we had some success and we were comparing our you know success rates with like taking a random sample of new uh, images or using the previous sort of thoughts on what are the stimuli space that excites these neurons like curvatures from Yep. I, I want to hammer this home because the the images that uh, drove the neurons were, and you mentioned this, but I just want to reiterate that they were terribly unnatural, <laughs> right? They're not not something that you would see. Well, I mean, there are elements that you would see in nature, right? But the majority yeah. of them, weren't they just something that you wouldn't yeah, make sense of? Yeah, those were like, I don't know what even called. I mean, there's some pixel, you know, conglomerations. Like, yeah. I, 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 so there, there, there were two studies that came out on the same day, and I think... The other images are even more scary. So this work from <laughs> Carlos Ponce and Marge Livingston, Gabriel Kreiman, Will Schaub. So they they were trying to control IT or they were trying to like, you know, come up with the images for IT. 
those images look even more scarier than, like <laughs> they have because they have some kind of natural relevance they look like out of a horror movie or something but like the v4 <laughs> the v4 images were more like textury kind of mm-hmm. images and we we are we are also restricting ourselves to like you know black and white images and things like that so i think that that was part of the it was constrained in certain ways that led to those images but yeah. but as you were saying that yeah it did get a lot of attention and and but but i think some folks have gotten excited about the wrong thing from the paper mm. uh and the resulting images that drove v4 i think cannot be the protagonist of the story because i think that kind of became the story because like we like to say like faces excite it right. neurons or xyz excites xyz areas and i think in that formulation then it became about the images as sort of the our new understanding of the system whereas that was not about the images it was about look how what you can do with this model because this is the model that tells you that what is going to be the predicted neural response for any given image mm-hmm. so I think that's what, where we are in, in, in the sense that, like, that we, we think of this as a stronger test of the model because there are many models then that could come up with different images, then you can test those as well. And I think there's work, very, very interesting work from Krieges, uh, Nico Kriegescorter's lab about controversial stimuli. I think those are the right kind of approaches, at, at least to me. Like you pit these neural uh, networks against each other and then synthesize stimuli and then test them. Mm. It's a different kind of control experiment, but... At the end, it's basically about model separation and finding the the best the best model. It's not about looking at those images and making kind of know <laughs> stories stories yeah. about them. Yeah. The the other side of this story, though, is that this should not make someone feel like oh, you know, solved core object recognition. This is the model. Wow. Clearly, they have yeah. Like, so <laughs> yeah, I mean that that that's the other f- thing. I I feel like. You know, there's ways of presenting data that can prove our point. It's a proof of concept study to me still. It's like, you know, look like if you take this approach versus the other approach, this approach, like our approach is better or something. Like that's kind of the way to present the study. But that doesn't mean that our approach is like the best approach or like we are done. So do you, do you have people suggesting that we're done? Uh, do do I, people? I, I don't think we have people who would explicitly suggest that we are done. But they might use this as an example of like, look how great the CNNs are. And uh-huh. I think it depends on whom you're talking to, because I can also use the same example to, to kind of like talk to somebody who's just basically saying, oh, CNNs have adversarial images and this is like a completely wrong domain of like models. I can then use this example to say like, look, you can do some useful stuff. Mm-hmm. But if I am coming up with things like, you know, you need recurrence and you need other areas to incorporate someone might go like but you can control reasonably well like why do you need to like incorporate all like so <laughs> if you really look into the models you know look at the generalization of the models it's not that good it's it's, it's like again not that is a very arbitrary like word usage but it's like yeah, rel- yeah. yeah but you feel like um in some sense you're your own worst critic right because you sure. uh you see all of the nuts and bolts and you see what's missing and what needs to happen and so do you feel like people are too complimentary are too impressed with the current work because i you know I think they you, should be well yeah they I should they, be I, I think they should be but i think they should also like everything else they should just i mean i i actually th- think this is our responsibility i mean to, to sort of also expose where the i mean if you read the two papers together like the neural control paper and the recurrence paper they're basically one paper is sort of highlighting how you can use them the other paper is sort of highlighting like here are the 
images that images, humans yeah. and monkeys are good and the models are failing. So these are the ways to improve it. So I think if you take all of these studies together, then you might get a more balanced perspective. And mm. I think my goal, at least, I mean, sometimes for a lot of reasons, I mean, you know better that like you need to sell the studies in a certain way. But I think in these kind of discussions or like in papers, in the discussion sections, like we, we should always be highlighting sort of the confounds or the potential, you know, places to improve these models. I mean, even for core object recognition, these models fail in very trivial ways that are maybe some people who are just reading this paper might feel like, oh, that's probably already solved. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe they don't exist. Maybe this yeah. is a thing that I've created in my head. <laughs> more <laughs> guilt, more, uh, <laughs> yeah, more I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that one of the things that you're interested in is uh, visual reasoning, right? And sure. uh, you're, and I don't know if you want to explain why you're interested in it and, and what it is, but um, one of the ongoing criticisms, so, so uh, non-human primates is kind of like the gold standard, right, in neurophysiology. And you need an N of two. You need two monkeys to publish right. um, classically. But, uh, and and um, recently there have been you know, a lot of people working more and more in rodents and mice. And of course, there's always been the disconnect between mouse brain and human brain. And one of the reasons why people uh, like to study non-human primates is because it's like the closest thing that we can study uh, that resembles uh, human brains. Uh, do you see um, limits to studying non-human primates uh, to, you know, get at our intelligence. So the reason why I asked you about the visual reasoning is because you're starting to ask. So object recognition is a fairly simple thing, right? I know it's not simple, but it's <laughs> yes, a, yeah. you know, we, we recognize objects, but now you're starting to ask uh, more cognitive, higher cognitive, quote unquote, questions. And I'm, I'm wondering if you see limits to using non-human primates for that. Yeah, I, I think the answer will be sort of uh, I mean, my answer to that question would be maybe based on the kind of data that I will be collecting in some sense. So the way I see this problem is that like, you know, ultimately, at least for myself, I'm not suggesting that everybody has this approach, but I'm pretty human centric in my worldview. And I, I mm -hmm. think my goal is to find out like how humans solve a particular problem. So they are basically like the main model that I'm interested in. Um, so I think we start from human behavior on different tasks and Ideally, we'll have a model, which is like currently maybe, you know, some form of a convolutional neural network, which has many areas other than ventral stream, like dorsal stream, PFC, and they will be kind of like predicting parts of the behavior of the humans and maybe at full capacity or something. And I think at least one angle of approaching the monkey research would be like, can I get some neural data that might be constraining for those models, might improve those models. Might, or and, and usually, I mean, the way people go about it is that they collect some neural data, come up with an inference that is more, can be like summarized as like a very smaller kind of principle, like have recurrence or like, like a mm -hmm. smaller model. And then they incorporate that idea into the bigger model and ask like, did I improve my, my model, my, my, my bigger model? Uh, we, I can do that. I mean, I'm probably going to do a bit of that, basically like saying, look like it looks like this other areas in the monkey brain is associated with this particular behavior. And maybe that is going to improve my, 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 my development of the models. The other thing could be like you just directly, you know, feed the data that you're collecting into the model building itself. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a lot of monkey data. So it's, then it's a matter of like questions of like how much data is enough data. 
and and I think we are getting more and more data. So it's a, I think this, this is the right time to like start putting them in the models. Like, so right now I'm involved in a project where all the data that I've collected is getting kind of filtered into the training part of the model and the models are being regularized with that data essentially. Mm. So like, and those models are becoming better predictors of core object recognition. So like, that is one way of bringing in the monkey neural data and the monkey behavior maybe to this problem. The other way I think about this is that maybe, you know, uh, humans and monkeys share a very, I mean, so maybe it's probably proven in many ways that we, we share a very similar visual system. Mm-hmm. So if, even if I just get responses of the visual neurons in IT or other areas, during showing some of these movies or some of these like, you know, videos on which the task is based off, I can be providing constraining data for the model of like, you know, you need to be in this representational space and then solve a problem. So like it's a two part kind of approach where the, the, the neural data is basically constraining the representational space of the model. And then on top of that, you add a decoding layer that is like reading those representation and you can have multiple ways of decoding the task. And then you ask like, which one, you know, or, or you can then compare it to human behavior. And I think this is, this could sound novel or surprising, but like this is exactly the thing that Jim's lab, like our lab has been doing for core object recognition for quite a while, where we were mm. recording in monkey brain, but then comparing the decoding models output to human behavior. Mm-hmm. I have now started working, like because I was also getting the behavioral data to mon- from monkeys, I have started now working, looking at trial by trial and like image by image behavioral correspondences with monkey neurons and, you know, human, sorry, monkey behavior. But it was basically monkey neuron human behavior. Mm-hmm. We had a paper with uh, Rishi uh, Rajalingam looking at hu- monkey neural responses to like words and non-words and their correspondence to human behavior on those sort of orthographic processing tasks. So I think there's a way to like do this kind of separated from a behavioral task. Cause I think maybe if you're asking that, do we, does the monkey need to do the behavior for them to be relevant to this task? And I think the same applies to rodents and other species. Mm-hmm. It's just to me the, the correspond, like the ultimately, again, as I was saying continuously throughout this, you know, discussion is that at the end, there is a model and whatever you do, you need to kind of show that that adds to improvement of the model on something. And now, I, from my, just what we're talking about, I can say like, maybe my goal is like not to improve like prediction on human behavior to ceiling, but maybe it's like, if I'm doing maybe predicting, um, behavior of neurotypical subjects versus, you know, uh. people with, with autism, do I have some traction on that problem? Maybe like I can do, you know, like inhibitory excitatory imbalances. I can create them more easily with chemogenetic perturbation in a monkey and then test what those representational spaces are. And those could be like kind of constraining ideas for when you're building models of people mm. with autism. So I think there are many, many ways in which, and I'm, 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 I'm saying all of these ideas and with the risk of sounding like as a scatterbrained person, like has too many, but I think <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, I think these are the things that excite me. So I think, and I won't be able to solve it all by myself. So I am hoping that a lot of people who are kind of, maybe similar minded, we all come together and kind of try and tackle this, this problem. So Co, neuro AI. Uh, so, you know, um, a lot of your, at least, you know, most recent career has been using deep learning models to shed light on brains on. So th- this is the arrow from AI to neuroscience. Um, do you see, uh, and part of what you're doing also is using uh, brain architecture and um, neuroscience 
some details to improve the models bit by bit, like you were discussing. Do you see neuroscience helping AI? Uh, or does, does AI not need neuroscience? Can AI just scale up and, and go to AGI or, or what? That's a interesting question. And also, I think I'm probably not the... My answer might not be that satisfactory just because of my lack of knowledge in a lot of these domains. But I think I think of this problem in different ways. So like, if I think of this as like, okay, I'm going to build a calculator and should I constrain myself with the brain data? No, <laughs> it's going to be like a terrible calculator uh, for scientific computing or something. So like, if that's the goal of an intelligence system is like to compute, you know, you know, calculate things fast and like, then I think constraining it with neuroscientific ideas and data is like a bad idea. Um, now, if maybe we can make a distinction of like behavioral data and actual neural data. So I, if you, if I want to prioritize in my head, like which data might be more informative to building models in for AI, I think behavioral data will come hmm. first before neural data. Some of the examples might be like moral machines uh, kind of data that is part of the MIT media lab. Like I think if we are trying to constrain a system to work like humans, then human behavioral data, I think, will be key to to, to constrain this. Uh, I mean, that, that's kind of been the success of deep learning, right? Is because it, yeah. it um, you, you, the old way in neuroscience was to build a model out of kind of intuition uh, and then compare it to data. And the new deep learning approach is to build a model and train it to optimize it for a task uh, like right. an animal or organism uh, would, would mm-hmm. perform. And so it's all about behavior. And lo and behold, the uh, model predicts neural data well also, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But there's, I, I mean, I was m- maybe making a slight distinction between like overall performance in a behavior versus like following the pattern of human behavior ah, uh-huh. and the error pattern. So like okay. ImageNet trained models are trying to get the labels correct, which is a behavior, but like humans might not always get those labels correct and like they might have different patterns. So I think I was mostly thinking like this error pattern of like what kind of decision do we make given some kind of confusing stimuli or things like that. Those kind of data might be more relevant to models if they want to sort of operate in a human regime because I'm thinking of like a system that might be like, you know, helping somebody go through life who are unable to do things in their life. Like that that machine or robot has to interact with with the person and then it's I think might be important for that 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 system to be constrained with human behavior to some degree. Um, for those purposes, I think behavioral data is very valuable. Hmm. At least that's how I think about it. Um, for example, also AI in healthcare might be something that is, might be very constrained. And there, I think maybe the neural data might have some bearing. Oh, really? On that, that, I mean, it still has to be shown, I think. I mean, yeah. but I feel like there might be some, I mean, as I was saying that this ideas of like, you know, how does the brain, uh, differ in a neurotypical subject versus atypical subject that kind like it just depends on the scale of the data and how we are getting it that and that that's the relationship of the brain uh representation to behavior i think those kind of data might help us to build better models of the atypical systems and then use solutions um that might be catered to the atypical system i mean now I'm kind of, you know, being very abstract by me. I mean, I can come up with like a dream sort of example where if you know exactly how like a system is learning, for example, a new task, and um, you can do that for both atypical and neurotypical populations, 
you might be able to use the atypical model to kind of come up with a learning sequence that produces neurotypical behavior, mm. even though it's an atypical system. So I think that kind of, that is definitely within, I think, the, the genre of like AI healthcare kind of like approaches. So I think that way, neuro to AI links probably are more clear mm. to me. I think generative models, um, might have a, you know, a boost if they're regularized with neural system data that, that, that is another maybe, uh, you know, angle. But yeah, but, but it's, it's, so I, I would just not, I mean, I'm, what I'm mostly worried is that it's not like, it's just not obvious that if you have some brain inspiration or like neural data is going to improve AI models, right? That's, th- that's what I'm kind of maybe pushing back against. It's like maybe you can get behavioral data and that's enough and you don't need to poke around. But isn't it interesting that, you know, these deep learning neural networks are based on 70, 80 year old neuroscience, like fundamentally the idea of a neural network back with even the logical units. I mean, yeah. uh, so and you're adding more uh, biological constraints to your models. So it's an interesting. Well, that's to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of that. Like, the, so the first part, I agree that that's like, you know, that that's where all of these ideas might have come up. And that's a good reason to keep, you know, looking at neuroscience for you know, inspiration for building better models. But if I look at the last 10 years, I really don't see a concrete example of like, mm-hmm. you read a paper in Nature Neuroscience or General Neuroscience and took that idea and implemented in a model that Drop is out. being Drop used out. by... Uh, <laughs> at the end, they're like engineering hacks. Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> both groups like to use it as PR, which is, I think, the uh-huh. reason why we... Yeah. So it's great for that purpose. But I think in reality, at the end, you can have an idea. I mean, I mean and that's, that's fine to me. Like, it's like, even if you have an idea of a dropout and then you figure out how to really like tweak it to make it part of a model that does something, that's great. And I think in that way, it's really good to have neuroscience as a inspirational kind of umbrella on, on top of everything. Hmm. Good, good for my career because <laughs> then I'll be <laughs> able to talk to those, those, but, but I think I, I definitely think there is, there is purpose of, of neuro. I mean, yeah, there will be use of neuroscience for AI, but we need to be careful to not oversell it maybe. And maybe we should, I don't know. But I, I think it's, it's uh, the other way around for me makes more, uh, to me, it's more valuable, especially because I think, you know, you're trying to measure data in the brain that is noisy. This is like sample limited and then build theories and models around that, like what to expect, like uh-huh. how to think about high dimensional spaces, blah, blah. So like to me, like once you have a model that is doing a very, you know, uh, high level behavior and very accurately, that complex system gives us an opportunity to like really figure out how to even analyze a complex system. Like, so mm. it's, to me, that's a huge bonus from these net networks because neuroscientists, I think, have been trying to do both things at the same time, like understand, like build the complex system and then figure out how to analyze the complex system. And mm-hmm. here are networks that are already built up and you can formulate like different theories based. And I think to me, that's like a huge advantage of having these networks. And, this, they, they really become like the starting points and the hypo, the may, maybe base hypothesis for a lot of these neuroscientific experiments. So that's kind of like, at least how I have been mostly getting excited about the, the crosstalk between the two fields. We, we talked about how there's this kind of archaic, uh, fallacy, I suppose, for, you know, naming a brain region, giving it a role, right? And, uh, the modularity of the brain, prefrontal cortex does X, that, that sort of thing. Um, and we've talked about, well, I, I guess I mentioned about um, how language actually limits us in some sense. 
Do you feel like we understand what intelligence is? Do we have the right notion of what intelligence even is to uh, start trying to, you know, to continue trying to build, quote unquote, uh, AI? I, I, I don't. We, I mean, I don't know which 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 scientists I'm <laughs> we are thinking of. Like, I think for me, I, I probably don't have a complete understanding of what intelligence is, but I I have a fair enough understanding of what kind of intelligent behavior I would like to build models for, and so that's where I'm just a kind of the engineering engineer in me, <laughs> maybe okay. like talking because I know what problem I have defined, I want know the solution. So like this kind of tasks that are slightly above, you know, recognizing an object. And like trying to figure out like what different agents are doing in a, in an environment or like trying to predict what might happen next. Like these kind of behaviors, I think are fairly intelligent behaviors. And, and my goal is to build models and, and, and try to figure out how the brain is actually trying to solve that problem. So in that way, I'm fairly happy about the definitions of intelligence. But then again, we'll get into trouble. Like I'll get in trouble saying, what is intelligence? Maybe like the, you know, the typical, like, IT, you know, scores or, uh, you know, IQ, not IT, IQ scores. I think they're heavily debated. And so yep. I, I just feel like what I want to say is that we can keep debating about what is the right score, what is the right way of quantifying intelligence, but we have to do it in some way if we want to have any measurable progress. Hmm. So I have defined it in some way and I will keep, you know, improving that definition and, you know, expanding on that definition. But, but I think, uh, intelligent behaviors, are to me not that controversial. Anything that I can do that my three-year-old son cannot do almost seems like a definition of like a little bit more intelligent, but he might be learning faster than me. So at this stage, so like the kind of definitions like that maybe that exist, but like, yeah. You have uh, a three-year-old? I do have a three-year-old. <laughs> three-year-old. Is, that, is that the yes. only child? We, yeah, yeah. He's our only child. Oh man, that's, uh, that's kind of a hard um, patch going through and starting a new job and all that. So... I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonderful thing, obviously, but you know, it's challenging early on. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Corey, are you, but, um, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I must say, like, it's, I'm happier, uh, on average, um, like, in, in, like, after taking into consideration everything around the child, I think overall, I'm happier that we have a son. <laughs> That's the most I will say about this. <laughs> yeah, okay. All it's right, a tiny, it's like a P, like, yeah, P equal to 0. 0.04. Yeah, but, right. Uh, I, I used to draw this, uh, <laughs> a pie chart where, uh, that I would show people, like, you know, do you, uh, are, do you like having kids? And it's like 51%, yes, <laughs> right? 49, no. But yeah, all right. Maybe I'll cut this because I sound like a, a real jerk. Um, are you uh, are you hiring in the lab? Are you looking for uh, students? What's what's the situation? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely uh, looking for postdocs and and grad students uh, to work together uh, in my lab. So I think if folks are interested, I mean the, the grad students are they're basically going to be um, recruited through York's oh, um, uh-huh. graduate program. Yeah, um, and the postdoctoral candidates, I think I'm like just going to you know talk to them individually and then see where the sort of, you know, alignments lie. And yeah, definitely. Like, so if, if folks are interested in, in whatever we spoke about, and maybe if they read some of the papers and think this, the, there are interesting directions that they might want to pursue, I'm definitely interested in, in talking. He's the future you. of neuro AI, folks. It's uh, <laughs> 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 that, 
This has been a lot of fun, Co. Um, congratulations again on the job. And uh, gosh, I'm Thank just excited you. for you. It sounds like you, you have a, a lot to pursue and um, things are uh, looking up. Not, not that they were ever looking down, but um, congrats. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. I mean, I mean, th- there has been a lot of promises made. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like making a lot of promise <laughs> and I hope I am able to deliver. I, I feel like as long as I can quantify what those promises are, I can tell you in maybe a year where I have been how much I have, you know, oh, delivered. We'll, we'll, so we'll check in in a year. We'll, we, we'll check we, in. <laughs> we should check in. But yeah, but I, I'm excited. I think I think this is worth doing. So so I, I feel like I'm I'm all excited to get on with it. This has been great, Cole. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare